Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Well, hopefully the article conveys uh, some of the really frantic shaping of history that was going on from polar opposites of the political spectrum at the conclusion of the revolution and in the early uh, contentious and polarized years of the republic. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Rand Morante comparing the writings on the revolution of John Marshall and Mercy Otis Warren. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Rand Morante, and he'll be comparing the recollections and memories of two historians of the 18th century into the 19th century, Mercy Otis Warren and Chief Justice John Marshall. We kind of have a gap in our in our collective memory about how we think of the American Revolution in the immediate aftermath. We know how people felt about the revolution around the centennial, 1876. Uh, everyone certainly wrote enough about it, and definitely during the bicentennial. In fact, Most of the writers here at the Journal of the American Revolution cut their teeth in the Bicentennial. Uh, Not me, Uh, but at any rate. um, What we don't think about a lot is what did the veterans and the people who lived through the revolution write about it in the 18-teens and 1820s when they remembered not history but their own youth? It's funny how, how we think of our lives in the past tense, how we remember things differently. And Rain Moranti's study is a really good example of that. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Rand Moranti. Rand Moranti, welcome back. Thanks, Brady. It's great to be back on again. Tell us about your background. Well, Brady, I live in Princeton Junction, New Jersey, uh, an area that you can view as uh, part of the cockpit of the revolution, as it used to be known, uh, with a lot of vestiges of revolutionary uh, happenings in the immediate area. I work in the development office at Princeton University, uh, which is my alma mater, and I've served as a lecturer as well in Princeton's uh, writing program. Prior to going back to Princeton, I was an in-house attorney at McGraw-Hill, the New York City-based media publishing and information company, a commuter on NJ Transit for many years. Uh, Back to Princeton, I've been a speaker on historical topics on a number of overseas trips on behalf of Princeton. The topics have ranged from the fall of New France to uh, the Berlin Airlift. And I've given a number of talks and lectures and tours on Princeton during the Revolution and shortly after the Revolution when it served briefly as capital of the United States. And I've had a variety of audiences, not just alumni, and students, but also uh, three conferences of federal judges. And it's every former lawyer's nightmare to be on one's feet in front of 70 federal judges at once. 
I've uh, given a talk to the descendants of George Washington who came to campus and were somewhat surprised, at least some of them, to learn about George Washington's step-grandson being boot out, booted out of Princeton. And actually, a really uh, unusual presentation to a group of very senior Chinese business executives that came to visit uh, back in the day when our relations with uh, the People's Republic were perhaps a, a bit bit rosier. I'll also add that in addition to a long-term interest in the American Revolution, I've also got a, a real affinity for the Napoleonic era as well. And a couple of years ago, I wrote a biography of Napoleon's sinister and chameleonic minister of police, uh, Joseph Fouché. The name of the biography is Medusa's Head. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, it's actually it actually goes back uh, quite a few years. As I mentioned at the outset, I taught in Princeton's freshman writing program for nine. Uh, I'm sorry, for five non-consecutive fall semesters, and the objective of the writing program is to give our students the skill sets they need to become effective and persuasive academic essay writers, given the primacy of the senior thesis at Princeton and junior independent papers. So the writing program is topic-based, and the topic I submitted, which was uh, received with enthusiasm, was treason. And treason really lends itself uh, wonderfully to uh, a discipline that is imbued with teaching argumentative skills. You can think about it as somewhat akin to a course on rhetoric. And one looks at treason, one traitor is another person's freedom fighter and vice versa. So it's uh, infinitely arguable. The students in my course were often surprised to find out that uh, the definition of treason in the U.S. Constitution is a rather restrictive and limited one. And that's, of course, because the founding fathers sensed the shadow of the nooses looming over their own necks. And the course, which it's uh, started with Plantagenet England and wound up in 2001-2002 Afghanistan obviously had to have a revolutionary war component to it being Princeton and the college and town's connection with revolutionary history so immediately one is led to Benedict Arnold as the poster boy for treason in the Arnold plot and the question then became well how do you turn Arnold into an arguable topic you know, one could, I suppose, have a very uh, uh, simplistic argument over whether Arnold was really a traitor because he'd re-adhered re to the crown. Or you could look into the details of the path towards treason and try to figure out whether there were any justifications or uh, uh, nuances to that. But what I really wanted to do was get the students to look at it through the eyes of contemporary historians and uh, people who wrote history following the revolution. So Brady was totally serendipitous. I was down in the, uh, uh, the stacks uh, of seafloor. This was not a Google search. And I was looking at the spines of various books and I, my eyes fell upon a work by Mercy Otis Warren called History of the Rise, Progress and Termination of the American Revolution interspersed with biographical, political, and moral observations. This was a reprint republication by Liberty Press in Indianapolis. And I wasn't familiar with the book. I pulled it off the shelf and just started glancing through it. And I was immediately struck 
by the intense tone that Warren takes this ideological argument that uh, runs right from page one through every page of her book. And she's obviously got an agenda and a mission. So then I leaf through the Arnold episode and I thought, boy, this is a, uh, a really interesting take from someone who appears to me to be, which is in fact what she was, a Jeffersonian Republican. So I already had John Marshall inserted into the course as sort of a placeholder because of the Aaron Burr treason trial. And I knew about Marshall as the staunch Federalist and biographer of Washington. So that's really where I came up with the juxtaposition. So in essence, what you've got from me in this article, uh, I used as a springboard the exercise or the portion of my treason course where the students were asked to uh, assess and analyze Warren and Marshall's takes on Benedict. Uh, this is unlike the other three articles I wrote for the JAR, which were really in the, in the military sphere and were researched from the ground up. So this is using the, uh, the springboard of my uh, writing program course to uh, generate this particular article, which I think is now under the, uh, uh, under the heading or category of critical thinking, unlike the other three that I wrote. Talk about how people remember the revolution during the 19th century. Well, I'm going to maybe limit your question a little bit to the uh, early decades of the 19th century, but uh, coming out of the revolution and in in the last years of the revolution itself, you had an incredibly fragmented, fractious time and experience. And the, uh, the revolution uh, was experienced by the American populace in many different ways. You had a kind of a rule of thirds that was in play, with uh, one third being staunch patriots, uh, and these are exaggerations in terms of percentage, uh, perhaps as many as one third, perhaps a bit less uh, as loyalists, and then a large portion that were neutral or just trying to survive and get through it. And by the end of the revolution, you had a uh, an extremely uh, difficult uh, economic uh, and financial climate in America, and the American people had just navigated this uh, you know chaotic, protracted, and obviously violent time which is really in the nature of America's first civil war. And uh, when you look at the, the end result, you know, the triumph of the Americans, it was to maybe the devout, the, the exercise of divine providence, or maybe just flat out luck. You had British mistakes. You had the French intervention and the role that played. And then you had this core group of uh, uh, really staunch continental soldiers led by George Washington, whose perseverance tended to carry the day. So as you enter into this period of time immediately after the revolution, there's, uh, there's a, a, a very weak, uh, ludicrously weak government under the Articles of Confederation. You have many Americans thinking, boy, did we just trade one oppressor, uh, Britain, for another one who's trying to tax us and collect debt. Uh, you have uh, violent uh, uh, uprisings. Uh, you have mutinies, uh, both among officers and uh, veterans of the uh, uh, Patriot Army. You've got the rebellions along the lines of the, uh, the uh, unpaid veterans driving the Continental Congress out of Philadelphia so it could meet safely 
in uh, first in Princeton and then later in Annapolis in 1783. There's uh, Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion. So this is a time uh, of, uh, of you know, disruption, uh, civil unrest, and uh, virulent partisanship. So at this point in time, the historians are trying to really shape some kind of consensus and certainly led by the Federalist leaders who need an origin story for the nation. So the immediate initial focus for excellent reason is really on George Washington, on the uh, experiences and perseverance of the Continental Line, and the, the experience of Valley Forge. And then, of course, in addition to that, in terms of memory and recollection, you have the celebratory Independence Day ceremonies taking place. And those are really a carryover from the revolution itself. Uh, after, uh, after the first decade of the 19th century, I think it was really the War of 1812 that began to bring the focus on memorializing the revolution in sharper focus, because after all, to some people's minds, you arguably had a, a second replay of the revolution. And even though the result was a bit nuanced, uh, the Americans view, viewed it as, uh, you know, as a triumphalist outcome. And thereafter, there was much more in the way of, uh, of ceremonial a memorialization of the accomplishments of the revolution as this sort of national unity story uh, took hold. And I think some of it is probably attributable to President Monroe being a, a, an army veteran of the revolution. This is when the pension systems for both continental soldiers and later for the militia get founded. Uh, you have Lafayette's 1824-1825 tour of America, immensely popular. And then with the advent of Jacksonian democracy and popularism, the tale of the revolution becomes much, uh, much broader with less of an emphasis, although there still is a great emphasis on Washington and some of the elites and leaders of the revolution, but also on the common soldiers. This is when the Bunker Hill Monument goes up, and that's probably the, you know, the real apogee of uh, malicious success during the revolution. You have the tales of the teacher, Nathan Hale, the uh, uh, the three militiamen, which I'll talk about a little bit later, who capture Major Andre as examples of uh, real popular yeomen. And the, the, the politicians of the Jacksonian era just could not ignore that large portion of the uh, electorate that needed to be included within uh, uh, within the revolutionary stories and legends. So that would really be, I guess, my assessment of what, what happens uh, at the, uh, in the immediate aftermath and the couple of decades after the revolution. The Civil War becomes a totally different topic where uh, the, uh, the history and legacy of the revolution is used uh, in varying ways, of course, by the federal government and by the Confederacy. But that's uh, a, a broad uh, topic in and of itself. Your article compares the works of two pretty prolific people, writers and chief justices of the Supreme Court uh, in the 19th century. Who were John Marshall and Mercy Otis Warren? Well, Marshall, of course, is famous as the great chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. He, was a, he still is the longest serving chief justice of the court, 35 years, I believe. And Marshall transformed the court 
into uh, a powerful third branch of government, the uh, the check and balance on the executive and the uh, legislative branches, and asserted and just underscored and solidified the supremacy of the United States Constitution uh, through the doctrine of judicial review. And he wrote hundreds of opinions, uh, just uh, formative opinions in his uh, long and great tenure as chief justice. Marshall was born in 1755 uh, in Virginia, and he served in the Continental Army in the 11th Virginia Regiment. He had some extensive combat experience. He'd fought at uh, Brandywine, uh, at Germantown, at Monmouth. Uh, He was a lieutenant. Uh, He uh, served with Washington, whom he idolized at Valley Forge. After the war, uh, well, actually, in the the last year of the war, he also had uh, something of a a not face-to-face, but an encounter with Benedict Arnold during Arnold's raid into Virginia in 1781. After the war, Marshall became a staunch Federalist and was very much responsible in large part for Virginia's ratification of the Constitution. And this certainly brought him to the uh, favorable attention of John Adams and to uh, Alexander Hamilton. And Adams appointed Marshall as one of his three envoys to France in 1797 to try to negotiate an end to the quasi-war with France. And instead, Marshall and his two fellow envoys were held up for a, a potential bribe by the uh, venal and corrupt uh, foreign minister of France, uh, Talleyrand, and Marshall wrote accounts back of this uh, attempted shakedown back at uh, John Adams. These accounts were published, and there was just an outrage and an outcry among many sectors of the American public about this uh, treatment. And this vaulted Marshall to some degree of real popularity to the point where he was uh, elected to the House of Representatives from Virginia, even though he was running in an anti-federalist district. So once he was in Congress, then uh, uh, Adams appoints him to uh, be his secretary of state. I think this term was for about a year. And then in the waning uh, days of the Adams administration, there's the vacancy, and Adams appoints him Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, this is after uh, Thomas Jefferson and his uh, uh, at-odds Vice President Aaron Burr uh, have been elected in uh, 1800. So we have this uh, wild scene where Marshall is administering the oath of office to uh, Jefferson and uh, Aaron Burr uh, in 1801. And Marshall and Jefferson had a uh, uh, a, a really inimical relationship. It probably goes back to when uh, the two of them were practicing law in Virginia, and they were uh, they, they just be, really became at odds whether they were on opposite sides of litigation or even when they were co-counsel on the same litigation. And Marshall viewed, it's generally believed that Marshall viewed Jefferson as something of a coward that Jefferson had not supplied frontline leadership during Arnold's uh, aforementioned raid into Virginia in uh, 1781. And then, of course, with Marshall being a staunch Federalist and Jefferson uh, an anti-Federalist, this uh, this enmity just took further root. And, of course, Jefferson uh, had it in for the federal judiciary. He viewed them all as uh, Federalist hack appointees from the Adams administration, and he unsuccessfully tried 
to really undermine the uh, judiciary uh, in his early years in office. So the the whole uh, the whole situation you know, further came to a head when in 1807 Marshall uh, became the presiding judge in the Aaron Burr treason trials, and Jefferson at this point loathed Burr and really wanted to see him convicted and you know, hanged. And he, Jefferson basically decried uh, the guilt of Burr in a speech to Congress before the trial even began, or the trials even began. And Marshall wound up with a very narrow and limited uh, uh, definition of treason and based on some, uh, some, uh, some very uh, suspect evidence in the case, wound up acquitting Burr. And so this just further infuriated Jefferson. Then finally, the, the other uh, final straw, or maybe it wasn't the final straw, but a concomitant straw that dropped, and this is unusual and directly relates to the article, Justice Marshall was in an arrangement with one of his fellow justices, Bushrod Washington, to write the biography of George Washington, while Marshall and Bushrod Washington were both on the bench of the Supreme Court. And Marshall did it, you know, I think partly because he just idolized, worshipped Washington, and partly because he needed the money. And he used the uh, his biography of George Washington, which was not a commercial success as a platform for some of his Federalist views and agenda. And uh, this just absolutely infuriated Jefferson, along with the fact that Marshall had relegated Jefferson to just insignificant mention in connection with the Declaration of Independence. And Jefferson called Marshall's uh, biography of Washington a five-volume libel. And the rumor came out that uh, circulated that Jefferson, President Jefferson, had actually used the postmaster general of the United States to suppress the subscription sales of Marshall's biography. I don't think this has been ever proven. It may have been disproven. But this was a widespread story at the time. And Bushrod Washington uh, certainly believed it and charged that that had been the case. So you have this uh, very, uh, uh, you know, very, very uh, acrimonious relationship between the president of the United States and the uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court on a number of counts. Mercy Otis Warren was a native of Barnstable, Massachusetts on the Cape, and she came from a ardent Whig radical patriotic family. Uh, her father was a prominent lawyer uh, an outspoken critic of uh, uh, Governor Thomas Hutchinson and British uh, rule of the colony. Uh, her brother, James Otis, was a member of the uh, Provincial Congress. He's famous for coining the phrase, taxation without representation is tyranny. He came to a sad end. He uh, developed uh, severe mental problems and was actually killed and struck by lightning. Uh, Warren's husband, James Warren, was the president of the Massachusetts Conven uh, Provincial Congress, and he later became the paymaster general and was on the Navy board for the Continental Army. So this is uh, 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 she's in an environment of uh, real patriotic fervor. And Warren herself 
was homeschooled to an extremely high standard, you know, far above that of uh, women of her day. And this was encouraged by her father, and she shared the uh, access to the tutors that were tutoring uh, her brothers for preparation to enter, enter Harvard. And she became extremely versant and knowledgeable in world history and the classics in uh, 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 religious matters. Uh, so she came from a, uh, a very sophisticated uh, background and learning. And she was a prolific correspondent. She wrote people very notably, Catherine Macaulay, the great uh, English woman historian, uh, but all kinds of prominent people of her age and collected their impressions, their you know, information from them about what was going on in the world in the years leading up to the revolution and then during the revolution itself. But it was more than just correspondence, far more than that, because their home, uh, when she was married to James Warren, uh, moved to Plymouth, Massachusetts, and it became something of a salon for uh, uh, patriotic leaders of the day. So she would meet with, uh, you know, met frequently and interacted with George Washington, with uh, Martha Washington when they were stationed there in 1775, with uh, Samuel Adams, with John and Abigail Adams, became great friends until they weren't anymore, uh, with uh, uh, Henry Knox, with uh, John Hancock, whom she came to detest. But uh, there, 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 many of the movers and shakers uh, were encountered first, first, first person by Mercy Otis Warren. And she was a, uh, uh, a great writer. She wrote uh, a number of satirical dramas and uh, uh, poems, many of them anonymous, that criticized the, their bete noir, Governor Hutchinson, cast him as this uh, evildoer and wrote poems, notably one about the uh, uh, Boston Tea Party, about the uh, frolic of the sea nymphs. And then she turned her attention and, uh, to writing the, the, you know, the history of the American Revolution. And she came out with this uh, 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 over the years, it was eventually published in 1805, this uh, uh, huge three-volume history of the revolution, all of which adhered to this worldview that Warren had developed. And I'd like to read, Brady, just a couple of sentences from the first page of the book, because they really convey uh, what Warren was about in writing this history. It wasn't merely some attempt at a factual recording. Uh, she describes history itself as the, quote, deposit of crimes and the record of everything disgraceful or honorary to mankind. So a definition of history that's rather weighted to the negative. And then she expounds immediately on the first page of her book on uh, what motivates uh, human beings. And she says, the study of the human character opens at once a beautiful and a deformed picture of the soul. We there find a noble principle implanted in the nature of man that pants for distinction. This principle operates in every bosom, and when kept under the control of reason and the influence of humanity, it produces the most benevolent effects. But when the checks of conscience are thrown aside, or the moral sense weakened by the sudden acquisition of wealth or power, humanity is obscured. And if a favorable coincidence of circumstances permits, this love of distinction often 
often exhibits the most mortifying instances of profligacy, tyranny, and the wanton exercise of arbitrary sway. So here, up front, we have Mercy Otis Warren's central commanding thesis that republics throughout the course of history, uh, be it uh, Athens, be it Rome, be it Venice or Geneva, eventually experience their downfall because society becomes corrupted. Its leaders and the populace in general become imbued with avarice, with uh, attempts to, uh, to elevate rank and privilege. They become divorced from virtue. And she becomes extremely concerned that the same evidence of decline and fall, and she was conversant with Gibbon, uh, can be viewed in uh, America at, towards the end stages of the revolution, and certainly in the uh, early days of the uh, federal republic. And she uh, you know, really starts pointing a finger at a number of prominent revolutionaries in her work, where she views them as having been swayed by uh, an infatuation with the wrong things, with non-virtuous ends. She even has a bit of criticism for Washington, which I think was probably unheard of at the time, in particular uh, Washington's uh, uh, attachment to the uh, uh, order of the Cincinnatus, uh, but also uh, points fingers at Benjamin Franklin uh, being imbued with monarchy, with uh, Governor Morris, with uh, John Jay, uh, she, of course, you know, castigates Alexander Hamilton, whom she refers to as a foreign adventurer and the creator of a national debt, which he never intended to repay and ruined so many uh, members of the American populace. And then she uh, uh, she really launches a salvo at President John Adams, her former friend and correspondent who had given her uh, a huge amount of her primary source in information that found its way into the book. And Adams, is, who had a short fuse to begin with, is just infuriated by this. And there's a, a, a plethora of letters that wind up getting exchanged by Warren and Adams with Adams with his short fuse, just protesting, you should have ended your work with Yorktown. And then even meanly saying that, you know, this is beyond the province of women to be you know, writing this sort of thing. And uh, that is a uh, becomes just a, a gaping wound uh, in the, the friendship between the two, the former friendship. So at the end of all this, uh, Brady, what you have is uh, 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 Chief Justice uh, Marshall having infuriated President Thomas Jefferson with his history and Mercy Otis Warren having uh, infuriated former President John Adams with uh, her history. How would you say that these two writers talked about and wrote about the American Revolution. How were they different? Well, Warren saw the revolution in this long historical context that I'd referred to, this Manichaean struggle between virtue and vice, uh, between moral behavior and evil. And she saw it in the context of you know, worldwide struggles, not just in the past, but in the future, for liberty and freedom from oppression. And she really viewed America as a as a, a beacon or as a model to the world. She uh, evinced considerable sympathy, although I want to caution that she also was quite critical of, uh, and understandably so, of the excesses of the French Revolution. But she shared the, the sort of favorable, uh, uh, somewhat favorable inclination towards the French Revolution uh, 
with President Jefferson, uh, who I think at one point said something along the lines of it. Good bloodletting is uh, good for uh, uh, human progress every once in a while. In the case of, uh, uh, and I should also add that uh, Mercy Otis Warren was a real advocate of human rights. uh, And to her, the important outcome of the revolution in the early republic was the Bill of Rights, not the Constitution. Uh, She wouldn't have, uh, she never would have approved the Constitution without a Bill of Rights. And she was a uh, very sympathetic to the plight of Native Americans, which is quite interesting because one of her sons was uh, killed uh, during the uh, one of the battle against the tribes at the Battle of the Wabash in the uh, uh, in the late 1790s. On uh, uh, on the other hand, you look at Marshall, and he looks at the revolution. It's a revolution in one country. Uh, breaking away from Britain made really good commercial and economic sense. And now what we've got to do is, uh, uh, is consolidate. And to Marshall, the revolution was won you know, by George Washington, his tremendous leadership, and the, his fellow continental uh, officers and men who prevailed with the help of the French alliance. And this is not uh, some uh, huge struggle of good versus evil. This is... Uh, uh, the perseverance and good military leadership that wins the day. And to Marshall, in the immediate outcome of the revolution, the enemy is, is anarchy. Uh, it's uh, lack, uh, lack of a strong central government. It's mob rule, whereas Warren sees it as backsliding right back into the evils of monarchism, despotism, speculation, and financial schemes. So they really, uh, uh, to them, the legacy and take of the revolution is uh is highly highly different and uh seen through the uh the lenses of their political beliefs how does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better well hopefully the article conveys uh some of the really frantic shaping of history that was going on from polar opposites of the political spectrum at the conclusion of the revolution and in the early uh, contentious and polarized years of the Republic, uh, I've always been struck by the uh, great historian, John Murin's uh, take on the constitution as a uh, roof without walls, that the, uh, that the constitution was a great document, but there was uh, little to support it at the, uh, at the time, or it's certainly that support could have easily been eroded. And I think, uh, for the readership, uh, this is uh, a real reminder, a stark reminder, that there's perhaps nothing new under the sun and that today's really acerbic, uh, acrimonious, and divisive political scene, uh, uh, we've, we've been there before. And uh, certainly the, the turmoil and the uh, animosities that uh, we see on the news daily uh, you know, certainly have transferred themselves to some extent from the early years of the Republic. You know, that may provide us with a limited comfort and reassurance, but I think that's the, uh, the real take is the, 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 the deeply held polarized beliefs, the not, uh, the not yielding any ground and the, uh, the willingness to, uh, to really make enemies, which, uh, both Marshall and, uh, Warren, uh, accomplished while in furtherance of their respective missions. 
Ren Moranti, thanks again. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Take care. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.